Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. We continue this morning to go through the book of Ephesians. We are in chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read just two verses for us this morning and then comment on the three that are following it just briefly. But the focus of this morning's message will be on verses 16 and 17. Paul is praying for this church and he says in verse 16 that cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It doesn't stop there. You'll notice that there is a comma or a colon that is uh, at the end of that. He continues praying that their eyes would be, uh, their understanding would be enlightened. And we'll come to this next Lord's Day, I think. And, but praise in verse 19, 7, 7, 18 and 19 and 20, that they would understand something of the power of the resurrection that God had given them. The world is enthralled with the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning, and rightly so. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed history forever. But true Christians understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than a a worldwide holiday. They understand something of the biblical importance of that. It was or it is a demonstration of the power of God over death and grave and Satan and sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated something for us. He showed us something. Sin keeps men bound up. The grave keeps them bound up. Death has a grip on them, and unless God does something for them, they're going to remain in that state. And God has shown us in His Son. I can do something about all that. That's, that's one aspect of it. But secondly... It is also a demonstration to a true child of God of how God saves them, how God saved them. The same power that it took for God to raise His Son from the grave is exactly what it takes to raise us out of the death of our sin and bring us to life in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in these verses later. I... Paul is saying, I want you to understand, I'm praying for you to understand that the resurrection, that power it took to bring his son up from the grave is exactly the same power it took to save you from your sin. And that eliminates forever the idea that we can save ourselves by any strength or power of our own. But there's more for the child of God. He grasps and understands that he is a Christian because God's resurrection power has been exerted toward him. But he also understands that this is a demonstration of the power that we need to live our Christian life. 
the bulk of religion lays upon the shoulders of those who profess to be Christians the responsibility. Now, I, you know me already long enough. I'm going to hold you responsible for what the Scripture says. I'm going to hold me responsible and you responsible. But the bulk of Christianity says it's all up to you. And we believe, yeah, we are responsible. And oh God, we can't. Oh God, help. And the power that comes to us to help us in our Christian life is resurrection power. And I'm going to get to that at the end of this message. Paul writes this church in a way that indicates that they are, he believes them to be a doctrinally sound church. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. He lists, or his list of doctrines, mentioned without any explanation, by the way. His list of doctrines begins with divine election, moves to divine predestination, and adoption, and divine acceptance, without any expanding upon the doctrines. Understanding that this church knew those doctrines. He taught that divine acceptance was based upon the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. And through that same redemption, they had gained forgiveness of sins. He opens up in verses 8 and 11 and speaks of the mysteries that God had revealed to them and showed them something of the inheritance that had been reserved for them in Jesus Christ. All of these things without opening up the words that he uses. And then he teaches the members of that church at Ephesus that they were true Christians because they had heard and they had received and they had believed the gospel message that had been preached to them from the very word of God. And after hearing God's gospel and after repenting of their sins and after having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of their soul, Paul speaks to them of having been sealed by God himself with the Holy Spirit. And that seal stamped upon their soul, stamped upon their heart, spoke of two things. First, that God had set them apart for Him. You are mine, and I am yours. And second, that that Holy Spirit dwelling within them was a testimony that these were the authentic followers of the one true and living God. In that day as in ours, there's a lot of religion. But what authenticates true Christianity is the presence of God in the soul. The old timers, our old Baptist forefathers used to talk about Christianity is God in the soul. It's, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what makes True Christianity distinct from all the religions of the world. And after spending the majority of the first part of this first chapter teaching them foundational doctrines related to their salvation, he breaks forth into praying for them. And as we look into Paul's prayer, we can learn something about this man and his heart toward this church. Paul knows this church 
is founded upon a biblical foundation. He knows that. He helped lay that foundation in this assembly. He writes of doctrines that most churches have not even been taught, much less understand. He writes as though he believes that they know and understand the doctrine related to their salvation. He writes as though he believes those doctrines are in their hearts, not just in their heads. And therefore he anticipates that what he writes will produce a true and biblical worship in their hearts. A worship that flows from the heart because they understand what God has done for them in saving them. Not a fleshly carnal worship based upon a toe tapping, hand clapping kind of song. But a worship that flows from the depth of the soul. That understand what God has done for me in saving me from my sin. He writes them as, and tells them that they should worship God on the basis of these doctrines. He did the same thing for the Corinthians, that church that was in so much error. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 14, in verse 15, he writes to them about, he says, I will sing with the Spirit, and then adds these words, I will sing with understanding also. Paul's worship, his songs of worship were based upon his understanding of what God, who God was and what God had done for him and what God had done for sinners. This is the one who is now praying for them. This is the one who has instructed them of, of their re responsibility to worship God on the foundation of biblical doctrine. Something is seriously wrong with us when the doctrine we believe does not produce a changed life. You can be straight as an arrow and delineate the doctrine straight as an arrow. But if there's no heart, if there's nothing in your heart of love for God that boils over in worship to Him, something's wrong. Something's wrong when a life that has been changed by God and saving that sinner is not dedicated to God and to the service of God. Something's wrong. Doctrine is not there just so you can dot your I's and cross your T's. The Word of God is there for us to learn and to humble us under the hand of God so that we can worship Him and serve Him rightly. Knowing that the church was a biblical church. This church at Ephesus. Paul knowing that they were a biblical church. Did not keep him from understanding that the church was in need. It needed to keep growing. He knew they had needs even though they may not have known they had needs. When you study his prayer, he's praying for them because he knows they need something. He knew that they were doctrinally sound, but that something was missing in the church. 
Something was missing in their Christian life. He knew that. And he burst out into praying for them. They had a well-laid doctrinal foundation, but they still needed a greater wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they could grow up, so they could mature in the Christian life. Someone might think this morning, well, I, I know all I need to know of Jesus Christ this morning. Paul writes here and prays for them that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this and meditating on it this week. And I thought about that text over in the Gospel of John where he said, search the scriptures. For therein you believe you have eternal life, but they speak of me. And I thought about that statement, they speak of me. The whole scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, speak of Jesus Christ. And then hear somebody say, I know all I need to know about Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry if that offended you. Are you serious? You know all you need to know about Genesis to Revelation? They speak of Him. From Genesis to Revelation, they declare something about the living God, about the Savior Jesus Christ. And you, well, I know, He's a, he's a Son of God. He became a man. He, he, he lived a righteous life. He, he went to the cross. He, was, he took our sins. He, he died under the judgment of God. He, he was buried. Three days later, He rose. And He ascended up. And now He's in heaven and He's praying for us. That's all you know? It's not enough. Paul is praying for this church that God would give them something they didn't have. Later in the book, in chapter 4, he writes about the gifts that God gives to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he says, and he gave some apostles and, and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. That was Ephesians 4.11. And then in verse 4, he explains why God gives to his churches these different gifts. For, for this reason. For the perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting is to bring the saints, the children of God, to some place of maturity. For the perfecting of the saints. And then for the work of the ministry. The second four refers to the saints being equipped well enough so that they can do the work of the ministry. The purpose of a pastor is to equip the church so that the church is equipped well enough and mature enough so they can do the work of the ministry. It is not the purpose of the pastor to do the work of the ministry by himself. But God has ordained His church to do the work of the ministry. That's what verse 12 teaches us. For the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ so that the church itself is building itself up. Not just the pastor seeking and doing everything he can to build the church up, but every member of the church mature enough to help each other. Every member. That's the purpose of the pastorate. 
That's why I stand in this pulpit every Sunday. The first responsibility on me as a pastor is to build you up in the faith. Second one is do the work of the evangelist. My first duty is to this assembly, every member, to see to it that you are maturing in Christ. And then he adds, verse 13, till we, come, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto a mature being, unto a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He goes on to say in other verses that we grow up into Him who is the head of the church. There is an assumption in Paul's writings to this biblically sound church, to this church that understands doctrine without, uh, doctrinal phrases and terms without explanation. There's an assumption in his prayer and his later writings that this church can be better than it is. In fact, I'm praying God give them something they don't have today. The Ephesian church received this letter from the Apostle Paul with open hearts. They were not offended when he told them they needed to grow. They were not offended when he told them they needed to understand the Word of God better than they did. That they lacked wisdom and a revelation of knowledge in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he began to pray at the end of chapter 1, they did not get offended when he prayed that God would give them something they didn't have. The church at Ephesus was organized sometime between 52 and 54 AD. Paul was there when it came into existence. Paul wrote this letter to them sometime around 60 A.D. They were a young church. They had a solid foundation in doctrine and a multitude of biblically grounded God-called men teaching and preaching in their church. In Acts 20, he called for the elders at Ephesus. Those were men who were God-called and equipped to teach that church. It was a solid church with a number of men in it who were God-called who could teach them the Word of God. And he wrote them. With that kind of foundation, wrote them. And says, I'm praying for you because you're lacking something. Later on, John would write a letter that we call the Book of the Revelation. In that letter, he addresses this same church. That was 95 AD. At that time, the church was now more than 40 years old. And they still needed to be corrected. They still needed to grow. And they still needed to mature in the things of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote them and said, you are missing something, and I'm praying that God give it to you. John wrote them and says, you don't have something that you need. You've lost your first love for Jesus Christ. In both cases, this church was not offended. This church repented and came to the place where they understood the need they had to grow and mature in Christ. They were 40 years plus old when John wrote them. 
And after 40 years of standing for truth and being biblically grounded, they had lost something of the fervency of heart for Jesus Christ. But they were still a good church. And the candlestick was still there and Christ still walked up and down the aisles and Christ was calling them to repentance. And they did repent. I say, Brother Pat, how do you know that? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but they did. He called them to repentance. Well, how do you know? Uh, two years later, or thereabouts, John gets off the Isle of Patmos and he has to settle down in one of the local churches. You know which cho- church he chose? You won't want to find this in the Bible. You know which one? You can find this in Fox's Book of Martyrs and, 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 and other books about Christian history. You know which church he chose to settle down and spend the last days of his life in? This church, the church at Ephesus. There in the last days of his life, he began to gather together what we call the canon of Scripture, the Word of God that was all over in Asia and Europe. And he began to gather this letter and that one together and bring them together in this church. It's a good church. It's where John would live out the rest of his days. It's a good church. But they had need. They still needed to grow. And so Paul writes, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. Paul's prayer for this church begins with giving God thanks for them. Thank you, God, for this church. And we ought to pray the same way that As a church, we have so much to be thankful for. What blessings God have bestowed upon us, even in the last three months. That's the only thing I can testify to, where I have first-hand knowledge. I have second-hand knowledge of testimony of others that said God's been blessing this church for some time. And there ought to be a thankfulness of heart in the members of this assembly. Thank you, God, that we exist as a church And understand some of the things that we understand. Thank you, God, for grace, for imparting to us faith. Thank you for protecting us and watching out. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you, Father. It ought to flow like a fountain turned wide open out of our hearts. Thank you. As did the apostles' heart for this assembly. Thank God for this church. Thank God for his blessings But Paul understands there is so much more we need as a church. After giving thanks to them, for them, Paul prays that God would give the church at Ephesus what they needed. Verse 17, I never cease to give thanks to you that. I'm thanking God for these things, but I'm also praying that. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. That God may give you. That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. He prays for this church. God, give them what they need. His prayer begins with thanking God for them and then continues to ask God to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. 
that only God can do. Only God could give them. Give them, Father, what they need. Give them a spirit of wisdom in the, and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Prayer is asking God to give us what we know only God can give. We know, we understand that a man can receive nothing unless he receives it from heaven. We know that. We understand that. When we go to prayer, we say, Father, give us. We know that. We say, Father, thank you. And we have need, so give us. Give us what we need. I need some strength. I need some comfort. I need some wisdom. I need something that only you can give. That's how we pray. If you're a Christian, you know that's true. If you're a Christian, you know that's true. Lord, teach me your word. Lord, help me here. Lord, do this. Lord, do that. Our whole prayer life is filled up with God. Give. But prayer is more than asking God to give what only God can give. Prayer is asking God to grant us something that is revealed in the scriptures. What has God said? Paul is praying that they would have a wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him that comes from this word. We'll get to that in a minute. It comes out of this word. What Paul is asking for is something bound up in the word of God. Something promised by God. The first thing the apostle asks for is that the members might be given the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and spirit of wisdom and, let me add, spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. The phrase, the word in, the English word in means through, the, through a greater acknowledgement of him or a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ through the means of coming to know Christ more than you know him today. God had already sealed them with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 But now Paul is praying that God would give them the Spirit. But they already had the Spirit of God. But they needed more. They needed more understanding. They needed more uh, wisdom. They needed more knowledge. God had already taught them from the Word of God. This was a doctrinally sound church. God had already taught them about Himself, about His Son, about the Gospel. You cannot read or study the book of Ephesians without understanding this church knew something about God. Knew something about His Son. Knew something about the church. They were grounded, doctrinally sound. God had done that for them. They understood His Gospel. They understood what the Gospel was. Unlike many in our nation today, they understood something of the ministry of the Holy Spirit among them. They were not without some wisdom and they were not without some knowledge, but they needed more. And so Paul prays that God would give them greater and greater day-by-day awareness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. He prays they might increase in wisdom and knowledge in relation to the Son of God. As soon as we stop growing in our understanding of Jesus Christ and what he has done for our soul, we stop growing in our Christian walk. This prayer is a warning. You cannot live your Christianity upon yesterday's ideas, upon yesterday's experiences, upon yesterday's teaching. 
You cannot live a Christian life without growing, without increasing, without going beyond where you are today. He prays for them. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in relation to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, in relation to or through the means of understanding and knowing Jesus Christ. He is the Spirit of wisdom. The Scripture often speaks of the Holy Spirit by the effects He has upon the heart and by the fruit He produces in the life. We say the Holy Spirit. The Bible is full of statements about the Spirit of God that teach us about who He is and His ministry in our life. Let me give you a few. John 14, 17, for those of you taking notes, He is called the Spirit of Truth. If the Holy Spirit is in you, He is teaching you the truth. Those that have a Spirit, that proclaim that they have a Spirit, that are lying about God and lying about what His Word does not, they do not have the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Romans 1.14, spirit of holiness. God elected us, chose us unto holiness. The spirit that comes into us is a spirit of holiness and leads and directs us into holiness. Romans 8.15, spirit of adoption. We know and understand something of the Father's ministry in our life. Ephesians 1.13, spirit of promise. Hebrews 10.29, spirit of grace. Study these things. Understand these things. When the Spirit of God is in you, the phrase at the end or the word at the end of the Spirit of defines what He is doing in your life. How he shows up in your life as a Christian. Here, Paul calls him the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you're a true Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is worked, has worked in your life to some measure. Is the Spirit of God still working? That's the question. Is the Spirit of God still working these things in your life? Is there room in your life to learn anything from the Word of God? Or have you just settled down to what I call status quo religion? Is there any room in your heart to learn anything about God from His Word? Or you got a handle on it already and you don't need to be taught anything? You see, Paul looks at this church, this doctrinally sound church, this church that has a testimony like you can't believe, and Paul says, this is a good church, but they need to continue to grow or they're going to lose something. The lack of wisdom and knowledge among professing Christians is directly related, professing Christians, directly related to one or two things. One, they only profess to be Christians and there's no reality of Christianity in their life. They prayed a prayer, they, they got baptized, they did this, they did that, and, and, but there's no life in the soul and the heart hasn't been changed. And they just, 
They don't have it. They don't understand. They don't understand the word of God. All they got is a few little cliches and you talk to them and a few cliches come out of their mouth and that's it. That's a sum, substance, and total of their Christianity. The other is they're genuine Christians. But they have not been taught God's word by the Holy Spirit. And the question is why? If the Holy Spirit has not taught them are they babes and need to grow? That's possible. Are they young children still and need to grow? That's possible. Some of you have teenagers in your house. They're no longer babies and, and they're, they're up in age and they understand things they didn't know when they were little. And But they are a long ways from being a mature adult. They still got some growing to do. You know that. You know that's reality in the physical realm. It's the same reality in the spiritual realm. Why? Is the Spirit of God not teaching them something? There's some, uh, there's some things we could go to in the Scripture and search out and find out. But the most important issue relating to this text is they're not reading the Word of God. They've got a handle on it. Why do, I need to, why do I need to read it? I understand these doctrines. I could quote them. I can, why do I need to read the Scripture for them? You see, it's the wisdom and revelation of knowledge in the Son of God. Revealing things about the Son of God that you had not learned yet, that comes from God's Word. How much time do you spend in God's Word every day, each day? How much time do you spend thinking upon God's Word? How much time do you spend... In the study of God's word. You see all these things are related to where we are at as Christians. There's a direct connection between how much time we spend in the word of God. And where we are in our Christian walk. There's a direct connection in the scriptures. Now, I'm not speaking about the time you spend reading what others have to say about what God says. Okay. I've got a library. You know that. Some of you have been in my house. You've seen my library. Not the, best, the, the biggest library around, but a good one. And I read books. I can quote men. But in the end of the day, that book goes up on the shelf and this is my, this is my food. This is my strength. This is my comfort. This is my wisdom and knowledge. This, this here. This here. And I open up the Word of God. And read what God has to say. Brother Pat, you've been a Christian since 1979. How many times you read the Word of God through and through from Genesis to Revelation? Well, I don't know, 50, 60 times? I don't know, but a lot. Why do you keep doing that, Brother Pat? Haven't you learned anything yet? <laughs> yes, what I've learned is I can read from Genesis to Revelation and never sound the depths of this book. Never get to the end of it. Never understand Something of God that I need to understand unless he reveals it to me. This is my necessary food. Is it yours? If we're to grow in knowledge 
of the Father. If we're to grow in knowledge of the Son of God, we must be taught by the Spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge in Him. We must be taught by the Spirit of truth. John 16, 13, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. He will. Not John Gill, and I appreciate the brother, all right? But not John Gill guiding you, but the Spirit of God with the Word of God. When I was in India, I used to tell those people, what would you do regarding the ministry if all you had was a Bible and no money and no building and no library and, 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 and no health insurance and nothing? You got nothing but the Word of God. What would you do to serve the Lord? What would you do if this building was gone? And all you had left in life was the word of God. Is God still worthy to be served? Could you even serve him without a microphone or an air-conditioned building or a soft pew? Can we even do anything in the service of God without something like that to help us along? And I'm not denying the, the blessing of those things. I'm just saying, get your life boiled down to one thing. Pick up the word of God and say, what could I do if I knew this book? To serve God. And that's all I had. Because that's all they had in the first century. In fact, they didn't have this much. They had bits and pieces of it. They turned the world upside down. The Spirit of God was teaching them. The Holy Spirit is the author of divine wisdom. He's the revealer of truth. Now, Paul is praying for this church that God would give them spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. There are some who never come to know God or Jesus Christ. Paul writes about that to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.7, saying there are some who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. To the Romans, he wrote, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. That's a good definition of religion. They got a zeal. We're not saying they're not zealous. They got sincerity. We're not saying they're not sincere. But it's not according to knowledge. They reject God's word. Wisdom may be directly imparted to children of God. God may just miraculously give you wisdom. Solomon prayed and God gave him wisdom. But it wasn't long before, if you're reading the scriptures, you find out Solomon needed a little bit more wisdom than he had. Right? 300 wives, 700 concubines. I think a man needs a little bit of wisdom there. The wives turned his heart to idols. I think a man needs a little wisdom there. And he had left off following the scriptures that the king of Israel had right by his throne. On the right side of his throne was the word of God. And he left off following that. And he was a wise man in the ways of the world. And he was a wise man in politics. But he missed God in some things. And he needed some wisdom that he didn't have. The Bible calls him the wisest man on the earth at that time. I don't doubt it. Because the Bible says it. I'm just saying he needed a little bit more than he had. James tells us if any man lack wisdom, let, let him pray. God will give it to him. I believe God can impart wisdom and uh, just divinely give you something. 
But generally speaking, wisdom is imparted by the Holy Spirit during the course of a life lived. Wisdom comes from reading. But not just reading, obeying. Experiencing for yourself the truth of the Word of God because you've obeyed it and God's Word has been real to you. You've read it and you said, this is what God says, I'm going to do it, and you did it, and, and you come through that experience and say, look at what God did in the middle of me obeying Him. And with that experience comes understanding. Oh, man, I understand things differently now because I'm obeying God. And with that understanding comes wisdom. It started back here when you read and you were convicted to obey. And you experienced something. And then you understood it in the light of the scriptures. And then, with that understanding, God gave you wisdom. And then he does it again and again and again. And you find yourself growing in wisdom. Something you didn't have before. Because you hadn't read the scriptures. hadn't obeyed it. Hadn't experienced it. Now you've got something. Something you didn't have. Now you go back again and you read again and God shows you something else and you do it again. And God shows you again the wisdom of doing God, God, God's work, God's way. The wisdom of doing what God says in the Scriptures. And then you experience it. And when God shows you that, you get a little bit of wisdom. That's the ministry, generally speaking, of the Holy Spirit. Paul warns the, the the brethren in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding. When you're understanding the things of God, don't be a child about it. To the Ephesians, he says in verse 18, the next verse that we're going to be, as he prays, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He wants them to understand the Word of God so they can do what it says. And get the wisdom that comes from doing what God says. Ephesians 5 and verse 17, he says, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of God, of the Lord is. Over and over, Paul speaks of them needing to understand what God has said. And James 1 and verse 22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Man can deceive himself by simply reading the scriptures, laying it down, and never doing what God says. When I say a man, I'm talking about generally speaking. Men and women can deceive themselves. Opening the word of God, read it, lay it down, and not do it. Our Lord warned in Matthew chapter 7 about those who hear these sayings of mine and doeth them. I will liken him to a wise man. That's wisdom. Man that hears and does it, that's wisdom. He goes on to say that he that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not is a foolish man. That's not wisdom. Paul is praying that they would increase in knowledge of the true God. He knows that every true Christian must grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must grow in a practical and experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must grow to know Him intimately and more deeply than He has known Him before. Spiritual growth is directly related to your knowledge of the Word of God. When God saves a person, He puts a hunger and thirst in their heart. As a pastor, I receive a person's testimony, if it's biblical. 
But then I began to watch the individual, to help them where I can and to watch them, to look to see if their life has changed. I listen to the words that come out of their mouth. I watch their life. I listen to their prayers. I listen to their conversation among other children of God. I, 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 I want to know what I can do to help them, where their weaknesses are, so I can come along and strengthen them. But those things tell me whether or not they're growing or not. Because when we were a child, we spake as a child. You no longer babble and coo and ooh and all like a baby, do you? You're grown up. You're an adult now. You speak, I hope, with a little wisdom, right? Same is true in Christianity. Growth is, is a necessary part of true Christianity. I watch. I see. Are they growing? Do they understand whether or not they have the Spirit of God in their life? Whether God is the focus of their life or not? It's sad that many say they're Christians but live as though they're content with the bare minimum knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. My whole ministry since 1979, I've seen people like that. They know a little, they can quote things, they can... There's nothing there that indicates that they're growing, that they're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Same is true of churches. Churches reach a certain level of Christianity and come to believe they've arrived. Come to believe that they are the apex of true Christianity. If there is a church in all of the scriptures that may have had this distinction, it was this church. Or maybe the church at Philadelphia, but certainly this church was one that shone above the rest. Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus to continually grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not his desire for them alone, but it is his desire for himself primarily. In the book of Philippians, he writes the church at Philippi in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, yea, doubtless I count all things for loss for. For what, Paul? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's a man that has been serving God for 25 or more years when he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And he says, when I look at my life, everything is nothing but trash in, in light of the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ in my life. He goes on to say in verse 9, to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him. What do you want, Paul, after 25 years of walking with the Lord, after writing more than half of the New Testament. Uh, what do you want, Paul? What do you want in your life? I want to know him. That word know is not know about it. It's a Greek word that talks about an intimate relationship. I want to know him. What do you want to know? I want to know something of the power of his resurrection. The world doesn't want to know about the power of his resurrection. They will acknowledge he rose. But Christians want to know about the power of his resurrection. They want to know something of how that impacts their life. 
How it changes them and how it changes churches. I want to know something about the power of the resurrection. I want to know something about fellowship. The word means to share in common with Jesus Christ his sufferings. The sufferings of Christ on the earth, not his sufferings at the cross. The sufferings of being a Christian, of being named with Christ. To being a follower of Christ in a world that hates him. I want to know something of what it means to suffer as a Christian. Uh, you start praying that way. And God might give you a little taste of what it is to know something of Christ that you have not known before. But not only that, Paul says, I want to be made conformable to his death. I want to die to myself. I want Christ's life in my, to be shown. I've got too much of me in me. I want people to see Christ. 25 years after God saved him, with more than half of the New Testament written, he sits in jail and says, this is what I want in my Christian life. I want to know him. And he writes to this church that is doctrinally sound, that can, doesn't need to have words explained to them, and he says, you're lacking something. What you need is the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That's what I need. That's what we need. And I pray you'll join me. That God would give us what we do not have. A wisdom and a revelation of the Son of God that we have not had up to this point in our Christian life. That the Word of God would be precious to us that we would sit down and open it and read it and ask God to teach us so that we can grow, so that we can grow up, so that we can be mature Christians in a generation that hates our God. And if you're here with Christ, that's, the, that's, that's Christianity. If we were here without Christ, you say, Brother, Brother Pat, I want to follow Christ. Well, do you not understand? Foxes have holes in the ground. The birds have they had nests in the trees. He had nowhere to lay his hand. You want to follow me? He says, come and follow me. But count the cost first. I will be your Savior. I will save you from your sins. I will forgive you your sins. I will. I'm the only one who can do that. But you come and follow me because I'm Lord. I'm the master here. You come and follow. I'll lead the way. And sometimes it'll be glorious. And sometimes it'll be mountaintops. And sometimes it'll be in, with flowers and birds singing. And other times it'll be down in the valley and it'll, it'll be rough. And you'll wonder what in the world is this thing called Christianity is about. And you'll find out God's with you in the midst of it. Come on, you want to be a Christian? You want to go to heaven? Come, come to Christ. He's the only way that you could ever get to heaven. But when you come, understand that when you follow Christ, it will cost you something. Come and welcome. Come. Do not hesitate. Hell is a far worse place than a few persecutions on this side of glory. Flee from the wrath of God to come. Come. 
Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. He can. He will. But come knowing that if you're going to follow Christ, He leads. You follow. And wherever He leads, the true child of God says, I will go. Father, bless your word this morning. Bless your children in this place. Bless those that are visiting. Amen.